my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When I got into banking and I realized these guys every day are kind of going through the New York Post or they're reading Time Out or Zagat's and they need to take their clients to hot restaurants. My girlfriends at the time worked in PR. I obviously knew people, you know, in the nightclub and restaurant industry because it's what young people do in New York. And I would just book tables and I convinced the guys that I worked with, oh, in order for you to get that table, I'm going to have to go. You're going to have to have a girl at the table. And I hustled my way in. And it ended up being a huge win for me because there I was three, four nights a week out to dinner for two and three hours with all the people on my desk, all of their big clients. And that's how I built relationships and trust and really how I built my career. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman and welcome to Math and Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. As we explore the stories from marketing and business, one of the most important components to great business decisions is good information. Garbage in, garbage out, the term coined by early computer programmers and still a basic tenet of computer science, applies to our business decisions as well. Hard to make a good decision with bad information. 
Today, we have someone who lives in this world of information and news. She's Stephanie Rule, host of the 11th Hour on MSNBC, and also senior business analyst for NBC News. A Christmas Eve baby who fits most of the Capricorn characteristics, Stephanie was a child of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. She lived and studied abroad during much of her college, started out in a career in finance, and even though she was a big success on a fast track, she jumped to media at Bloomberg Television in 2011. She's been a part of NBC News since 2016 and has never looked back. She's smart, she's caring, and she's always insightful. Stephanie, welcome. I am so grateful to be here and grateful to talk to you. Before we dive into everything, I want to warm up with you in 60 seconds. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you prefer salty or sweet? Salty. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Trading floor or the TV studio? They're the same room, just nobody realizes it. New York or New Jersey? Oof. My heart is in New Jersey, but my soul is in New York. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Slow and steady or pedal to the metal? Pedal to the metal, but man, I wish I was slow and steady. Comedy or drama? A little bit of both. Cats or dogs? Oh, there's no question. Dogs all day. Life, work, balance, or life, work, integration? Life, work, integration, absolutely. First concert? Meatloaf. Childhood hero? My grandmother and Miss Piggy. Favorite news anchor from before your time? Tom Brokaw by a mile. Favorite newspaper? New York Times. Favorite podcast? Pivot. First computer? Commodore 64. This is the best one. Guilty pleasure. Oh, guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Eating in bed while watching TV. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, we're warmed up. Let's jump in. I'm going to start with a big topic, news. There are two schools of thought today. Collect all the relevant information about important stories and then give the viewers, listeners, or readers all the information without bias or twisting to any one point of view. When Walter Isaacson was on, he uh, talked about in his days at Time and CNN, he wouldn't even vote because he was worried just by deciding who to select, he would have a bias and it would influence his coverage. The other school of thought, of course, is to serve a particular group and reflect their views in the news, tailoring it for them, for their point of view or beliefs, not necessarily biased, but covering it from that angle. Clearly, the latter today gets a bigger audience, and ad-supported media lives on the sale of advertising, so that's important. Where do you come down on this, and how do you see the current state of news in the U.S.? I think it's sort of in the middle. I think sort of this merely providing information is limited, and it's not necessarily what people need from news organizations, because you can get basic information from a lot of places. I wish it was clearer who's providing said basic information, but I think there's something more than just straight news that doesn't take you all the way to bias. And that to me is insightful perspective, right? You mentioned Walter Isaacson. If Walter Isaacson were to come on television in conjunction with a news story or a presidential historian, let's say a Michael Beschloss, they're not coming on and giving a deep bias. They don't have deep ideology that they're going to solve for at the end of any story. But what they can do is give insightful, educated perspective. And I want that with my news. I want to watch television where I understand, here's the information out there. Here's the story that's happening on the other side of the world. And then the second beat 
is here's why it matters to you. Here's what this means historically. Let's put it in perspective. And to say we cater to our audience, that's different. That's not news, right? So when I think back to my grandparents, my grandparents were religious listeners of someone who I know you knew very well, Rush Limbaugh. They loved Rush Limbaugh because Rush Limbaugh was a radio personality who shared some of their political ideology. But they didn't turn to Rush Limbaugh to get their news. They turned to Walter Cronkite. Those are two different things. I think those are two valuable things that exist in news and entertainment and opinion. But they should be marked what they are and audiences should understand what they are. I don't have a deep ideology. My hope is I want the world to get better and smarter. I want to create content that helps people do that. I want the world that I hand my kids to be better than the world I received. How does social fit into all this? I've been struck by a stat that about 15% of America is far left or far right, but 80% of the messages over social come from the 15%. How does that fit into a human in the United States getting the news and understanding it? You know, when I really started thinking about the impact of social during COVID, before I was working from home, when I was sitting in a newsroom, I felt like social was so tied to sort of the zeitgeist of America, how people felt, what they thought, what they were doing. And then COVID hit and I was living in a teeny tiny island in New Jersey and I was around my neighbors and small business owners and I realized how teeny tiny a portion of us are actually on social, tweeting, following things. And it got me thinking more and more how twisted social media is and how it does impact what we say and how we think. And the truth is, we don't even know who's behind half the people that are tweeting. Let me ask you a question, Stephanie. You just talked a little bit about the difference between opinion and news when you were talking about Rush and Walter Cronkite. In social, do you think we have an issue of understanding what is opinion and what is news and what is paid for and what's not paid for? It's totally unclear what's sponsored, what's not sponsored. I might send something out because I just think it's funny or goofy. And what if it's wrong? And what if I sent that tweet at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday and I didn't do my research? Well, there's me, Stephanie Rule, who's viewed, hopefully, as a responsible journalist sending out nonsense. Before social media existed, I had to really carry myself to a standard that somebody is part of a news organization. And if I was saying or doing irresponsible things, NBC could say to me, hey, Steph, you do that, you're off the air. Now you've got news, quote unquote, personalities that consider themselves bigger than their news organization. And so they're saying and doing wild, irresponsible things and their news organizations can't control them. And so I think it's very messy. I don't have an answer for it, but I know it's not helpful. Well, let me ask you another question on this. Bill Paley, founder and legendary head of CBS, thought of news as sort of a nonprofit contribution. Cynics might say he did it to keep Washington out of his business. Others would say he did it because he felt it was his duty. Are news organizations better if they're part of big organizations so it's not the whole business? but has a little more leeway in terms of economics, or does it not matter? Sure. In theory, should news organizations operate almost like a nonprofit, like a public service? They should. But at the end of the day, we're controlled by money, and the most talented people, the most valuable resources are drawn to profit centers. 
not nonprofit centers. In a totally pure world, Bill Paley's right. We just don't live in a pure world anymore. You think the public's view of news organizations has changed? And how do you think they see what you do? Of course, it has changed over time. But I would also argue that because there are so many news outlets, because the barriers of entry are so much lower today, I actually think in many ways the American public is better than they've been before, right? We keep thinking that like, oh, back in the day when there was only a certain amount of news organizations, you know, whether it was TV news or radio news or newspapers, weren't we all the better? I don't know that that's the case. Back when there were such difficult barriers of entry, I wonder, did the whole truth ever get out? Back in the day, think about cylinders of power, right? You had media, you had government, you had business, you had the church. How could anyone break through those cylinders of power? They couldn't. They were impenetrable. Now, look at the state of Pennsylvania. What was it 15 years ago? Through tiny social media campaigns, victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic church found one another. And what did that end up doing? Having a real impact on the archdiocese of the state of Pennsylvania. That's huge. Back in the day, what could someone do if something corrupt was happening in their small town? Write a letter to their congressperson? Good luck with that. Now, one person's tiny voice can have a huge impact because of those social media channels, because the barriers of entry are so much lower. That's extraordinary. Now, is that dangerous in terms of standards and legal and best practices in terms of news? Absolutely. And we've got to figure that out. Okay, let's go back in time now. You grew up in New Jersey, born in the mid-70s. Can you paint the picture of those times, that location, and your family life? I grew up in northern New Jersey. My dad was a mechanical engineer, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and she ran the PTA in my hometown and the Board of Education where I lived. My mom devoted her whole life to my sister and my, my life, my success. And something I can remember from a very, very young age how I didn't respect, and I have so much regret over it now, what my mom did for a living, which was the most important job, being a full-time parent and devoting herself to my school system and improving my school system. I viewed everything as the person who makes the money in your house is the boss of your house. And I can remember being a little girl driving with my mom in the car to drop my dad at the train station. And my mom being in her pajamas and my dad in the passenger seat and me sitting in the back seat. And I can remember my dad getting on the train every day and thinking to myself, I don't know where he's going or what he's doing, but one day I'm going to be the person on the train and I'm not going to be the person in the car in my pajamas. I mean, my mom pushed me very hard from a young age to always have a job, to be focused on my career, to be focused on success. But it really wasn't until I myself became a mom and really struggle with all of the difficulties of life and and marriage and parenthood and career that I truly understand and I appreciate the importance of parenthood. And as a working mom myself now, how to appreciate those other mothers and fathers out there who dedicate themselves to be full-time parents, to improving school systems, because I'm the beneficiary of that. I read somewhere that you were the serious kid, that you would rather make money babysitting on a Saturday night than going out to parties. Is that an accurate story? A hundred percent. I mean, I think if somebody met me out on any Saturday night now in a wig and a costume and who knows what, 
I'm a pretty extroverted person. I, I do love to party, but I've always, always been focused on making money because it's freedom. It's not greed. Having your own money. And I knew that from when I was nine, 10 years old, it gives you options. Money certainly doesn't give you happiness, but it gives you options, Bob. Think about the industries where you see the most abuse and the most harassment. It's in industries where women are backed against the wall trying to make rent. And when I was in the eighth grade, I met a family that I could babysit for every Saturday night and I could get paid 50 bucks a week. I did the math as an eighth grader and thought, is there a high school party I could go to that's more fun than 50 bucks? And the answer was no. And I pretty much have never been to a high school party on a Saturday night because I always wanted to make the 50 bucks. In that time period, what were the big issues that you remember? I mean, what was consuming your view of the world then? Gosh, when I was in high school, what was consuming my view of the world? My social life, my, my popularity, nonsense, right? And now when I look at teenagers, I think it's that times a hundred. To be totally honest, Bob, it was the one thing that gave me reservation about having children. I can remember how painful it is to be in junior high or to be in high school. And I remember thinking, if it's that hard to live that pain yourself, it's going to be 10 times harder to be the parent watching a child grow up. It's amazing to me that from a young age, the way our society, the way our culture works, the way our media works, it's about being exclusionary. It's about being popular. It's about having a best friend. It's about being a captain of that team. And everything is, how do I elbow somebody else out to get on top? And that's such a lonely, terrible place to live. Wouldn't it be better to teach our kids and live our lives to be part of a community and make the world around us better? I wish that's how I thought when I was younger. It's certainly how I think now. Let me jump in here. Do you think that that is more reflection of the 80s of your time? I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And in the 50s and 60s, there was a, it seems like much more of a social conscience, more worried about the world. For me, being a white suburban girl in New Jersey, I grew up in the 80s. You had just delivered me MTV. So I lived in a time of a lot of pop culture and privilege, to be totally honest. Do you think that was the first time that pop culture really began to influence society and that that somehow hurt our kids being detached from the world and not looking at these bigger issues? Or do you think this stuff just comes in cycles? I think this stuff comes in cycles. And I actually think, you know, the advent of something like MTV did a lot for us in the fact that music connects us and connects culture. And MTV, I mean, you know this better than I do, also brought things to the forefront and conversations, whether down the road it was about Rock the Vote or really talking to people about AIDS or seeing people on our TV every night that sounded different or looked different. MTV era really brought this idea that being alternative wasn't being fringe. It was just part of the zeitgeist, part of culture. That's what we want, right? We don't want our kids to feel like fringe is weird or on the edges or something that isn't part of the mainstream. The mainstream should include everyone. And that's actually where we're getting now to a more inclusive society where we should just accept people for who they are and where they are and where they come from. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Stephanie Rule. So you go off to college. You survived your, your high school years. You went not too far from home in Pennsylvania. You graduated with a degree in international business. How did you get there? And what did you think that was going to do for your life and business? I accidentally ended up there, Bob. I went to college. I originally thought I was going to study engineering. <laughs> not long after being there, I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. As I said, my dad is a really brilliant engineer. He worked for an engineering company and he eventually took it over. But when I was a little girl, I can remember being in a car with him and realizing he was a lousy businessman. One of their clients needed a part. They made very, very specific positioning devices. And I had to drive into New York City and deliver this tiny part in a manila envelope with my dad. The person stayed in a hotel for a week waiting for my dad's company to manufacture this piece. 
I remember dropping the manila envelope off with my dad. And we get back in the car. We're on the ride home. And I said to my dad, so what would you charge them? And he said, what are you talking about? And he, he said, what do you mean what I charged them? I said, that person came here. It was an emergency. They needed that thing. How much more did you charge them for it? And he said, we didn't charge them anything more for them. They needed a piece. We gave it to them. And Bob, I can remember being a little girl thinking, this guy's not very good at business. That guy flew all the way here to pick up this piece that they desperately needed. Why didn't he charge them double, triple, quadruple? And I remember in high school thinking, my dad's this really brilliant engineer, but I don't think he knows how to build a business. And I think I'm a great salesman. I'm going to go work for him one day. So I said, I'm going to study engineering. And my dad said, you're going to hate engineering. You will not be a good engineering student. Do not do this. So I go to Lehigh to study engineering. I get there and I quickly realize, oh, yeah, I'm not going to study engineering. I'm going to fail at this. So I had an older sister who was graduating from architecture school. And I said, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania at this frat boy school. Which, and she said, go abroad. The most important thing is life experience. Go abroad for as long as you possibly can. So I did. I met the dean of the International Business School, which I didn't even know what it was. And he helped me kind of craft a new major. And I went and I studied in Guatemala, Kenya, and Italy. And when I was in Italy, I wanted to stay living in Europe, but I had no money. So I wrote letters to Lehigh University alumni who worked in banking because I knew they had banks all around the world. And I wrote, dear whomever, can you get me a job, blah, 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 blah. And Merrill Lynch offered me a job in Switzerland. And before the summer started, the group blew up. And they said, you can go work for Merrill Lynch in New York. So I came back to New York. I worked for Merrill Lynch for a summer. I didn't even know what they did. I had some like terrible back office documentation job. And one day early in the summer, I had to make a delivery onto the fixed income trading floor. And I just love energy. And I said, I don't know what these people here do for a living, but this is what I want to do. And I met these two guys who were interest rate derivatives traders. And I said, can you teach me what you do? And I would come in before my workday started and I would go see them when my workday ended. And these guys taught me about interest rate derivatives. So I applied to go work at all these banks for their sales and trading programs. And because I kind of had a wacky resume, having studied all over, I got in a bunch of interviews. The night before, it's a Sunday night in New York City. So I go to dinner with these two guys and these four other guys that worked with them, like just friends of theirs from the industry. And so they're all like 26, 27 years old. I'm 20. Because they all worked at banks. They interviewed lots of undergrads. And they start talking about the math problems. They would ask all the candidates, all these word problems. You know, like there's two trains going down opposing train tracks. One's going 60 miles an hour. One's going 90 miles an hour. When can the first one get to Tallahassee? You know, one of those. Which, Bob, there's no way in God's green earth I could ever answer any of these questions ever in my life. But I'm sitting at dinner, half listening. They're basically talking through all the word problems that they do in the interviews. I walk into my interviews that week, J.P. Morgan, Smith Barney, Credit Suisse. And I literally get asked every single question that I had heard Sunday night. And I can't do any of the math on the, you know, you know if you're supposed to show your work. And I'm like, hmm, 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 uh, 42, 68, you know, Los Angeles. Seattle. And they're like, yes, yes, yes. So I absolutely aced the test. And the truth is, I accidentally cheated on it because I would never have been able to solve any of the answers. But the truth ends up being, it's kind of how I ran my career in banking anyway. I also, I heard this story, which sort of goes along the same characteristics, the same person, that when you were working in banking in the late 90s, 
you were able to get reservations at the hot restaurants and clubs for the senior folks. And the only caveat was they had to bring you along so you could, again, learn from them, meet their big clients, really get, I guess it's the new world apprenticeship. Is that a true story? And how did you manage to figure that out? It's absolutely true. When I got into banking, I had all these thoughts like, oh, maybe I want to work in equities. Maybe I want to do this. Maybe I want to do that. And someone said to me, go where they need you. And one of the first rotations I had was on a corporate bond desk I knew nothing about. And they had had a bunch of turnover. And so I thought, I'm going to stick here. They're short on staff. So I end up on this desk and I realize these guys every day are kind of going through the New York Post or they're reading Time Out or Zagat and they need to take their clients to hot restaurants. And so I figured it out. My girlfriends at the time worked in PR. I obviously knew people, you know, in the nightclub and restaurant industry because it's what young people do in New York. And I would just book tables. And I convinced the guys that I worked with, oh, in order for you to get that table, I'm going to have to go. You're going to have to have a girl at the table. And I hustled my way in. And it ended up being a huge win for me because there I was three, four nights a week out to dinner for two and three hours with all the people on my desk, all of their big clients. And in any business, I think news is the same. Every business, Bob, is about trust and relationship building. And that's how I built relationships and trust and really how I built my career. So let's jump. You had a really good career in finance and you looked like you were making great headway in achieving your goals. You're at Credit Suisse, at Deutsche Bank. And then you jump to journalism. So it's time for you to give us that origin story of how you got into journalism and news. You know, I always wanted to work in journalism from when I had a Fisher Price cassette player as a four-year-old making commercials with my sister. It's what I always wanted to do. But I think people don't really pursue their dreams when they have a day job. And I was lucky enough to have a day job in a very lucrative industry in banking. Two years into banking, I almost left to go to journalism school, though. And a mentor of mine said, don't leave. Do this for 10 years. Make your own money and then figure out what you want to do. And that really was very good advice at the time because it's a privilege to pursue dreams when you've got your rent paid for. And I worked really hard for a long time and I saved my own money. And I worked really hard and I thought, I'm going to do this for 10 years and then I'm going to change careers or then I'm going to start a family. And 10 years in, I did start a family, but I wasn't ready to change careers. But I thought about it a lot. And I thought about TV. One day I was giving a speech for a nonprofit called the White House Project. And a woman who ran it named Tiffany DeFue was talking to the board after. And she said, women and minorities always get lumped together. But if you take the 50 most powerful black men in the United States, they help one another more than the 50 most powerful women. All of you are senior in your industries. You each need to say what you want to do next. And somebody else in the room has to say, I'm going to get you there. And it was my time. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to work in the media. And there was a woman at the table who ran human resources for Bloomberg. And she said, I'm going to be the one to get you there. And a few days later, I met a guy named Andy Lack who ran Bloomberg Media. And he said, in the new world of media, there's no more teleprompter readers. You have to know the information. You have to love the content. And the audience has to want to have a relationship with you. And I said, well, Andy, I've got one and two better than anybody you have in this room. And number three, that would be a risk. A very good friend of mine is a guy named Todd Bowley. And Todd said, you go back to them, you tell them you will do this job for the lowest amount of money of any person who works at the whole company. 
They can give you no contract, so they can fire you at any time. But they need to give you a TV show to anchor, and they need to hire somebody to teach you how to be on TV. That way, you're sharing a little bit of risk, and they're taking very little risk. And Bloomberg miraculously said yes. It was definitely a leap. I took a 90% pay cut, and I was scared. You know, there was a good chance I was going to humiliate myself, Bob. Like, I wasn't just changing careers. I was changing careers publicly, right out there in the open. By the time I made that career switch, I had saved a lot of money. And so I was taking a huge pay cut, but it wasn't that big of a risk. And I was making a move not to cover pop culture, but to actually cover Wall Street, exactly where I came from, where all of the guests that Bloomberg would want to have on TV were people that I knew for years and years. So it's about reducing the risk when you make a leap like that. By the way, at Bloomberg, I will point out you had one of your early successes. You were one of the folks who broke the story about the London Whale. For those who don't remember, that was the uh, J.P. Morgan trader who lost about $6 billion. It was a trader who basically got offsides in the market, who got so, so big and so irresponsible, he blew up a huge portion of the market. Breaking the London Whale crushed my husband. When I was in banking, he ran credit derivatives at Credit Suisse. I sold credit derivatives at Deutsche Bank. I was at Bloomberg for about six months when a source of mine with an old relationship of mine calls me and said, you need to look into this trader. You need to look into somebody who's gotten so big, so offside that like this guy can't get out of his trade. I come home from work that day and I said to my husband, do you know somebody named Bruno Ixil? They call him the London Whale. And he looked at me and he said, I can't talk about it with you. Uh, I, need, I need to call my office. And he put his sneakers on and he went running. And as soon as he said that, I was like, uh, I guess we're on to something. It turns out my husband running a derivatives desk was a huge counterpart of the London Whale. So when the London Whale blew up, it was crushing to banks all across the street. And it was crushing to my own husband's business. And when the story broke, people like really came after me like, oh, my God, like you cooked the goose for us. I can't believe you did this. Like you're one of us. Why would you do this? And I have to give credit to my husband who was like, this is a story that should be told. This is totally wrong what's happening in the market. You know this industry better than anybody else covering it, Stephanie. It would be a huge mistake if you didn't. And you went on to NBC, great career. Now you've got one of the great jobs in news, anchor of the 11 o'clock news on MSNBC. I want to sort of use some of that perspective now, and I want to share some with the folks listening today. When you look at business leaders today, how do you think they use information and what do they need? If you ask a business leader today, 2022, what are some of the most important characteristics? They would say being an empathetic leader, understanding your people. You'd be hard pressed to find a business leader today who's got sort of the Gordon Gecko rule with an iron fist, my way or the highway. It's so much more collaborative. And I just think sort of the evolution of our business leaders is fantastic. As far as information goes, it's all completely warped right now, Bob. Years ago, Coke and Pepsi, right, they would battle. Their marketers would battle. Their advertisements, like their campaigns. Now, you could come out with a campaign and immediately an underground group of sort of social media gorillas could go after that new product and crush it moments after it launches. And what kind of business leaders do best in this world? The biggest problem our business leaders have today is that we live in a world of short-termism. You could have the most 
productive, thoughtful, long-term vision for your company. But in the world that we're living in, with activist investors banging down your door every other day, nobody can make long-term decisions. For business leaders, everything is about your next quarter earnings call. Let's move from business to the world we live in. We talked a little bit about how technology, social in particular, is changing it. We talked some about what's good and bad about it. Any other technology here that's on the horizon that you think is going to have the kind of impact that the iPhone did 15 years ago? I don't think it's necessarily a specific technology, but I do think the impact COVID had on us, working from home, telehealth, remote education, skills-based training is going to change things. When we look at the jobs of the future, they are not necessarily tied to four-year degree liberal arts education, and they're much more skills-based. During COVID, you saw a lot more companies like Google, like Salesforce, like IBM, create more skills programs so they can recruit workers that don't have four-year degrees, that are coming out of high school, that can get higher paid, higher skilled jobs. That is something I'm excited about, about where we're going, rather than the scores of young people taking six years to get out of community college with communications degrees that don't align with the jobs of tomorrow. So let's talk about jobs of tomorrow. Globalization. Is that a quaint, outdated notion now? What's happening? Globalization is important. But three years ago, if I brought up supply chain issues to you, Bob, you'd be like, what? I'm not thinking about the supply chain, and neither was I. And because of COVID, you're now seeing enormous companies like Walmart not just say we're going to buy American because it's the right thing to do. More and more companies are saying we're trying to source from American manufacturers because it's the more economical thing to do. We're never going to produce things cheaper than they do in China and places in Asia, but we're starting to realize we need to bring more and more manufacturing back to the United States, and that's a good thing. So advice time here. If you could go back in time, give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? Mind your own business. That simple? Yeah. Not mind your own business in a petty way. Mind your own business, meaning focus on yourself. Work hard on yourself. Don't be hard on yourself. We keep looking at what other people do and what other people have and minding their success and using that as a marker for our own. I remember... There was once when I worked in banking, somebody who got a huge opportunity that I 100% thought I should get, and I was dying over it. Like I was in a bathroom stall, losing my mind, crying, like, you got to be kidding me. And I went to go see somebody who was sort of a mentor of mine. And I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm going to bury this person. Like, I, I can't believe this happened. And he said to me, somebody else's success could probably be explained in, in three ways. Either they are a super, super talent that you don't realize, and maybe you're not as good as you think, that's category one. So it won't help you trying to bury them. Category two, they're hooked up. The CEO of the company loves them. They get a customer who worships them. Like they are just in the hookup alley and you're not in it. That's category two. Or category three, they're a fraud, just like you say. They bullshitted their way up. It's never going to work out. And they're going to blow themselves up in a year. So why be the person that tried to bury them along the way? Be the good person that was minding your own business and focus on your own success. Seems like the slow to blame, quick to forgive philosophy of the world has uh, gotten lost a little bit. So I'm not going to end this without, of course, doing something very practical here. 
I'm going to use your experience in news. If someone has a great new product or service, they have some new development in their business, how's the best way for them to get news coverage? Start telling their story themselves. Do it on TikTok. Do it on Instagram. Start showing it. Don't do it with a PR firm. Don't do it with a pitch. Start showing it. And I think it will get pickup. Someone's going, great, Steph. I'm in Iowa. How can I do that? You know how you can do it? DM me. We're journalists. We're all looking for ideas. And I'm not looking for one from a PR firm. You know, we live in an age of Shark Tank where the Mark Cubans of the world discover all sorts of businesses. Tell your story. You can do it. We end each episode of Math and Magic the same way. We do a shout out to the greats in the world of analytics and the creatives, the math people for the analytics, the magicians, if you will, for the wildly creative parts. And it takes both of those to have great business, great ideas, great products. Who is your choice for the best in math? Someone who blows my mind, who I think is sort of the ultimate, would be Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg figured out there is a product that Wall Street needs, and I'm going to perfect this one single product. I'm not going to go outside my lane. I'm not going to go too broad. I'm not going to go too big. I'm going to fill this hole for Wall Street, how they can communicate and price assets. And once I perfect this product, I'm going to charge an enormous amount of money for it. So I have no competition and I'm choosing the highest end market where they can afford it. And I'm going to charge them an enormous amount of money and never, ever, ever give them a break. And that's what he did. He is a brilliant risk manager. And who in magic? Don't laugh at this one. It's Harry Styles. I didn't even know that much about Harry Styles. And a few months ago, Harry Styles performed on the Today Show, and I brought my daughter to go see him. I went in like, oh, he came from a boy band? He has Mick Jagger charisma and rock star status. Everything about this artist is absolute magic. The morning I saw Harry Styles perform, that night I went to a dinner that Mark Benioff of Salesforce hosted. And Matt Damon was sitting next to me. Matt Damon, right? Born identity. And I turned to him and I said, Matt, I know I should be sitting here so excited to sit next to you and blown away. And I am. And I said, but I have to tell you, I saw Harry Styles perform this morning and I've never seen a star like this in my life. And are you ready for what Matt Damon said to me, Bob? He said, say no more. He said, I'm Matt Damon. He said, my wife has gotten to meet celebrities, do incredible things. You know, he rattled off. He's like, you know, I know George Clooney and Brad Pitt. And we've gone to all these blah, blah, blah. And he goes, and in all my years with her, the one thing my wife has ever asked me for in the world of celebrity and entertainment is tickets to see Harry Styles with my daughters tomorrow when his album drops. He said, you are not alone. So when I tell you I think pure magic is Harry Styles, I'm not alone. Matt Damon agrees with me. <laughs> There you go. Math and Magic, Mike Bloomberg and Harry Styles. Probably the only time those two are on the stage together. Stephanie, you've got an amazing story. You've got wonderful insights. Thanks for sharing it today. Thanks for having me, Bob. I love you. Here are a few lessons I picked up in my conversation with Stephanie. One, news should offer insightful perspective, a middle ground between objectivity and bias. As Stephanie said, the best journalism tells the story and why it matters. Two, ask for a seat at the table. Whether it's writing letters to bankers in college or insisting on going to business dinners with her bosses, Stephanie got where she is today because she advocated for herself. Three, 
Mind your own business. As Stephanie says, don't compare yourself to others. Just work hard and follow your passion. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Dew, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoy. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.